Last summer, when Herschel Walker first started running for a U.S. Senate seat in Georgia, there was something very strange about his campaign. He almost never spoke. People spoke about him. Donald Trump talked endlessly about what a great football player Herschel Walker was and how he'd be a great candidate and a great U.S. senator. And, oh, hey, did I mention what a great football player Herschel Walker was? Walker himself would make appearances at events and he would shake hands. And occasionally he would read a short, prepared statement about how much he loved America. But even CNN ran a headline last fall that said, quote, Herschel Walker is often seen and seldom heard. Toward the end of last year, Herschel Walker went on a radio show. It was friendly territory. A conservative host asked Walker to basically let loose on Senator Raphael Warnock, who would be Walker's Democratic opponent. And in that moment, we found out exactly why Walker's campaign tried to never let him speak. He brings up uh, voting rights, uh, the, the John Lewis voting rights bill, what do you say about Raphael Warnock trying to push this during this time to try to what I call federalize elections? You know what's sad about that, you know, to use the name of a great man to bring up something that is so bad, and I think it's terrible to do. You know, uh, Senator Lewis, one of the greatest senators that's ever been, and for African-American, that was absolutely incredible. I think man to throw his name on a bill of uh, the voting rights, I think is a shame. First of all, you know, when you look at the bill, it just doesn't fit what John Lewis stood for. Okay. First of all, the late John Lewis, not a senator, served in the House for almost 40 years. But even if you want to let that slide, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act is named after John Lewis because it was literally the culmination of John Lewis's life's work. Herschel Walker's version of that history is Literally so far off the map, it is on another planet in a distant galaxy. And this was far from the only time that Herschel Walker got in trouble just by opening his mouth in public. Here is an ad that Raphael Warnock ran earlier this year that is literally nothing but a clip of Herschel Walker giving an interview. You know what, Glenn? I'm going to say something. I probably shouldn't. Do you know right now I have something? that can bring you into a building that will clean you from covert as you walk through this, this dry mix. As you walk through the door, it will kill any covert on your body. When you leave, it will kill the virus as you leave this here product. They don't want to talk about that. They don't want to hear about that. I'm Raphael Warnock and I approve this message. That's it. That's the whole ad. Just Herschel Walker claiming he has a dry mist that can kill all of your COVID. Another time, responding to the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, Walker proposed, quote, a department that can look at young men that's looking at women that's looking at social media. I mean, sure. okay. There was a time he seemed to suggest there's no point in investing in clean air in the United States because China will just take our clean air and send their bad air over here. At least I think that's what he was saying. And Walker routinely exaggerated his business exploits, and he lied about graduating from college, and he pretended to have worked for law enforcement when he didn't. And then there are the years he claimed his food company donated 15% of its profits to charities, but it never did. So, okay, there are Walker statements, which, yes, are really extremely questionable. And then there are his actions. 
Herschel Walker has a well-documented history of domestic abuse, including allegations that he held a gun to his ex-wife's head and threatened to kill her multiple times. And of course, there were the revelations that Walker had hidden the existence of one and then two and then three previously unacknowledged children. But maybe the truly gobsmacking thing here isn't the latest bombshell about Herschel Walker's past, that the supposedly staunchly anti-abortion candidate allegedly urged and then paid for an ex-girlfriend's abortion in 2009. Walker denies the allegation, though the ex-girlfriend has provided literal receipts to back up her story. Maybe the gobsmacking thing here isn't even that Republicans appear to be rallying around Herschel Walker more fervently than ever in the wake of this latest revelation. A church full of evangelicals in Atlanta applauded and prayed over Walker barely a day after those allegations broke. Walker's campaign claims it has raised over $500,000 since that story came out. Maybe the gobsmacking thing here is really how broken the Republican Party is that this guy was ever allowed to become the nominee for a U.S. Senate seat in the first place. And for a Senate seat that could very well decide which party controls the upper chamber next year. It's not that Republicans didn't know who this guy was. National Republican leaders were freaking out. And by the way, speaking out well over a year ago about Herschel Walker getting into the race because they knew what a disaster he was. Even this new story of Walker allegedly having paid for an abortion, that was reportedly an open secret in Georgia politics. A top GOP operative in the state told Politico that when it was brought to the attention of Walker's campaign staff months ago, quote, the reaction wasn't, they're not going to say that because it never happened. It was like everything else. Eh, people aren't going to find out. Eh, turns out they did. But Herschel Walker was Donald Trump's choice. And the Republican Party apparently had no appetite for fighting Donald Trump on this one. Even Mitch McConnell got on board with Walker's candidacy early on. Herschel Walker being the Republican nominee for Senate, this was a group effort. Of course, the truly, truly gobsmacking thing about all of this is that it may not matter, any of it. Herschel Walker may very well win this Senate race despite being such a disaster of a candidate. That's the bet that Donald Trump and the rest of the Republican Party have gone all in on. That in the end, having an R after his name is the only thing Herschel Walker will need to claim victory in the state of Georgia. Joining us now is Greg Bluestein, politics reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So first tell me how this is all playing out in the state of Georgia. We have those fundraising numbers, half a million dollars raised by the Walker campaign. Is there a sense that voters may be softening in terms of their support for Walker heading into the final stretch of this election. There certainly is that sense. It's really hard to tell right now how this will all shake out, though he's denying these reports, of course, he has a credibility issue, right? If, if these similar allegations have come out against Governor Brian Kemp or other Republicans and they flat out denied it, there'd be a significant number of Republicans here who believe them. But in Herschel Walker's case, we've seen all sorts of ads and damaging news reports and other other um, you know, other public airings of his lies, of his exaggerations, of his conspiracy theories, of falsehoods. And that has undercut his credibility. So I'm hearing from Republicans um, even before this, but certainly accelerating now, who are just very concerned about his candidacy. And 
who feel like even though they know he'll vote the way they want him to vote on, and the vote, he'll vote with Mitch McConnell probably right on a, on a number of issues, um, they're worried about his his fitness for office right now. Well, yeah. I mean, you say credibility, right, which implies that there may be a trust issue in terms of his reliability. When we talk about Republican voters, they're not the same as Republican politicians in the state of Georgia. What are you hearing from the Republicans who are on the ticket who have skin in this game, like Governor Brian Kemp? How is that campaign treated, the Walker revelations? Yeah, it's really interesting because while we see national Republicans rally around Herschel Walker because they have no other choice, right? It's too late to take him off the ballot. Um, Georgia is critical to GOP efforts to flip the U.S. Senate. So uh, there's no backing down or backing away from Herschel Walker for the national Republicans. Local Republicans are steering clear. Governor Kemp has made it very clear that, you know, he supports the Republican ticket, but he's going to run his own campaign. He's not going to be tied to Herschel Walker and said as much to me in an interview, even before this Daily, uh, this Daily Beast report came out. Other Republicans, too, are kind of sidestepping the issue. They have their own races to run. They want to focus on their own uh, their own fates in November rather than tying themselves to Herschel Walker. What about the issue of abortion, right? Which is, it's there's the issue of Herschel Walker's character, right? But then there's the fundamental issue of abortion. And this just brings it right back into the fore. We know that nationally that's been an issue. What about in the state of Georgia? Does that matter here in this particular case? Or has this has the trustworthiness and the hypocrisy eclipsed the actual issue about women's access to reproductive choice? I mean, Republicans want to be talking about anything but abortion right now. And this steered the conversation back to the Dobbs decision, back to the Supreme Court ruling that it overturned Roe v. Wade, and back to the very issue that Democrats hope will change the electorate for them. Right? Stacey Abrams, the candidate for governor, and Senator Raphael Warnock, uh, Herschel Walker's opponent, uh, they've been rallying for months now, even before the Supreme Court decision came out, saying what a dangerous decision, you know, what, 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 how that would undermine, um, you know, our, our, our legal framework here in the U.S., trying to energize women, and particularly women, to go vote and change the electorate. And so now they've got this issue right back in the center stage um, at a very time where Republicans would rather be talking about the economy, rather be talking about inflation, rather be talking about anything but abortion. Greg Bluestein, politics reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the AJC. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for your reporting, Greg. Now I want to turn to longtime Republican strategist Mike Murphy, who has advised Republican candidates, including John McCain and Jeb Bush and Mitt Romney. He is currently a co-host of the Hacks on Tap podcast. Mike, you're the person I wanted to speak to about this because I need we need wisdom about where the Republican Party is, where it has come from, where it is going. And I got to ask you, I mean, it feels like there was there would have been a time maybe when Republicans might not have called for Walker to leave the race, but would not have rallied around him in the way that they are. Is this the after effect of the Trump presidency when Republicans sort of developed a new strategy of impunity politics? Well, I I think the strategy at the top is to try to survive Donald Trump, who is almost always a wrecking ball in the general election. In the old days, we would have stopped this Herschel thing in the primary and not nominated such a weak candidate, particularly in a year like this, where you don't have to be a great Republican candidate to win. So this is just a kind of disaster the, you know, the practical politicians don't want. Now they're stuck with him. He doesn't have a big fan club, but what does have a big fan club is winning that Georgia seat. And then the theory is, well, surround him with good staff and, uh, you know, uh, he'll vote right. 
So Did- the question is, in, in a seat the Republicans should be winning this year, will these sort of allegations, and it's not the first one from him, uh, derail the Walker candidacy? And I have to say, in a wave election, I'm not sure it will. Would it's a did, close I, race, uh, despite this. Did, if he wins, does this become a cautionary tale or an instructive one? I mean, does it suggest, hey, by the skin of your of your teeth, you got hit your guy over the finish line? Or is or is the lesson learned? You can literally nominate anybody. You know, I think different wings of the party will each take the lesson they want to see. And Donald Trump, of course, will make it worse uh, if Walker is elected by talking about him as a future vice presidential candidate. So there will be mile long lines to psychiatrist offices in New York and L.A. Because <laughs> what could be a worse liberal nightmare? The fact is he's unfit. And in the old days, we would have blocked a candidacy like this. But the stakes are so high in this election, you know, Leader McConnell and others are going to hold their nose and try to pull them over. What I'm interested in is the debate. Because we've seen them in public. You had some tape earlier. If I were his campaign manager, I'd pay somebody in the back of the studio to throw him a tight spiral or something to move it <laughs> from anything to do with the Senate race. Make it about his celebrity. Uh, because uh, now with these allegations and the hypocrisy, uh, it could be a very rough debate for him. Just get it back to football is basically the strategy. But I mean, I, I want to bring your attention to an article written by David Graham in The Atlantic that suggests, you know, he could say anything in the debate as long as he has the letter R at the end of his name. And this is the quote. With voters viewing the other party as an existential threat to the lives, to their lives or the republic, they seem willing to overlook nearly any personal failing in the name of partisanship. That's the result of an era in which nothing means as much as the letter next to a candidate's name. I mean, it's this, not just the abortion hypocrisy. It's the wife abuse. It's the lies, the blatant fraudulence. None of this has mattered. And I know you're interested in the debate. And, you know, I'm sure Herschel Walker's debate coach would love to see a tight spiral thrown onto the stage. But does it matter? I mean, if this guy can weather these storms, what's to say any anything matters anymore? I mean, is this the end point of partisanship? And I'll say specifically Republican partisanship. Well, that is the big question. And there are still some swing voters. You look at the gap between how Governor Kemp, uh, uh, somebody who's a very successful politician, is doing versus uh, Walker, and you see he's behind Kemp. you got those kind of gap voters. But we are in a very... Uh, Herschel Walker has two things propping him up. The, well, three things, really. The tribalism you're talking about, where people are loyal. Yeah, you know, our pitcher's terrible, but I'm a Red Sox fan. There's no way I'm going to put on a Yankee hat. I'm going all the way. That's helping him. The fact that, like most midterm elections, this is shaping up to a negative referendum on the president. So it's more about that protest message than even flawed candidates. And finally, if you're somebody who's hugely credentialed outside of politics, voters tend to give you a long leash in the political world. In an election like this, for most people, two-thirds say we're on the wrong track. In some places, more than two-thirds. Candidates like Walker are seen as a way to punish politics. The more the politicians kind of pearl clutch and say, oh my God, how could he ever be in the U.S. Senate? It actually can kind of help them. They become protest vessels. So all those things are propping up a disastrously inept candidacy and going to be close. I I mean, I just can't believe, uh, Mike, how much Mitch McConnell has become a whipping post 
of the extreme MAGA wing of the Republican Party. I mean, Donald Trump is out there writing racist screeds that are effectively party betrayals on Truth Social. And nobody in the Senate, these are directed at Mitch McConnell, and nobody in the Senate is defending Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell's out there saying, don't nominate Herschel Walker. Nobody listens to him. I, I, I mean, I think that kind of behavior and yeah. looking uh, the other way just furthers, A, Trump's power in the party and also atrophies the party of the establishment that could protect the party from these kind of Looney Tunes candidates. Well, it's true. But Mitch has a caucus in the Senate full of people who are afraid of their primary voters in the Republican Party. So his, his grip there on these kind of things is limited. You know, it's funny. I feel a little bad for Mitch. I saw an internal poll in Utah where there's a fascinating Senate race between Mike Lee, the incumbent, and Evan McMullen, the independent. And the least popular politician in Utah was Mitch McConnell, because all the MAGA people hate him, and all the Democrats hate him as kind of a stage villain. So, you know, the poor guy. But he, he, it's not the old days where the Washington leaders of the party could really dictate to the primary electorate what to do, particularly when you have a messiah like Trump running around. And we're going to see this Herschel Walker factor in other, other races, too. Well, we have weak candidates who were mightily assisted by Trump in the primary. You know, it, 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 it's like he's working for the Democrats. They ought to name the DNC building after him. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, Mike Murphy. But one never knows. Longtime <laughs> Republican strategist. The mind we consult in moments like these. Thanks, as always, for your time, Mike. Thank you. Still ahead here tonight, Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis met with President Biden today while surveying the devastation caused by Hurricane Ian. Is it a sign that DeSantis is settling, setting political partisanship aside? Don't bet on it. But first, billionaire Elon Musk is closer than ever to becoming the new owner of Twitter. New York Magazine editor-at-large Kara Swisher joins us to discuss what happens if Musk decides to re-platform Donald Trump. We'll be right back. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. On January 6, 2021, in the middle of the Capitol riot, then-President Donald Trump tweeted, quote, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our Constitution, giving states a chance to certify a corrected set of facts, not the fraudulent or inaccurate ones which they were asked to previously certify. USA demands the truth. 
Thanks to the work of the January 6th committee, we now know that this was how the crowd at the Capitol responded to Trump's tweet. It was clear that it was escalating and escalating quickly. So then when that tweet, the Mike Pence tweet, um, was sent out, um, I remember us saying that that was the last thing that needed to be tweeted at that moment. The situation was already bad, and so it felt like he was pouring gasoline on the fire by tweeting that. It wasn't until two hours after that, after the crowd luckily couldn't find Vice President Pence to hang him, that the crowd went home. And that is because President Trump tweeted a video telling them to go home. President Trump's Twitter account was a bully pulpit in the hands of a real bully, and it had a significant impact in the real world. There were Trump's early years on Twitter, where he repeatedly spread misinformation that President Obama wasn't born in the United States. By the time Trump was elected, that little piece of misinformation had convinced 72 percent of registered Republican voters to doubt President Obama's citizenship. Or after Trump was elected, when he began his personal campaign against Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, repeatedly demonizing her on Twitter. Now, Trump was not the first person to push birtherism or the only person demonizing AOC, but his voice on social media was really, really loud. This week, AOC's office told The New York Times it can hardly keep up with the astronomical amount of threats she receives every day. Her office has a daily routine of updating a document with photos of men who have threatened her so she knows what they look like. A daily routine. At the end of his term, President Trump had more than 88 million followers on Twitter, and he tweeted more than 26,000 times when he was president. That is dozens of tweets every day. But since January of last year, Trump has been silent on the platform. After January 6th, Twitter formally banned Trump from Twitter, citing the risk that he could incite further violence. And sure, yes, Trump now has his own social media platform, but he only has four million followers there. So basically, we've had more than a year in which Trump's preferred rage incitement device has been taken out of his hands. But that may be coming to an end soon. Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla and the richest man in the world, is moving ahead with his agreement to purchase Twitter. And one of the only clues we have as to what Elon Musk will change when he takes over is that he has suggested he would reverse Trump's Twitter ban, saying, quote, it was not correct to ban Donald Trump. Musk considers himself a, quote, free speech absolutist, and whatever that means. The people who've been deplatformed from Twitter have been celebrating the possibility of Elon Musk's takeover since he first offered to buy Twitter this spring. I am cautiously optimistic about the prospects for Twitter now that Elon Musk has taken over. I don't know Mr. Musk, but I do invite him to come talk with me in Washington, D.C., I'd be happy to put together a roundtable of all the most brilliant people who have been unjustly banned from Twitter. Those brilliant people, according to Marjorie Taylor Greene, include the likes of conspiracy theorist Alex Jones and far-right troll Milo Yiannopoulos. All of them, plus Donald Trump, could be back on Twitter before the midterms. What could go wrong? Joining us now is Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of New York Magazine, co-founder of Recode, and host of The Pivot Podcast. Kara, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thanks, Alex. 
So it it seems from the reporting that Musk's purchase of Twitter could be imminent. How do you read the tea leaves on this? Oh, it's going to happen unless the financing falls through. There's a couple of areas they could if they the court and and Musk's lawyers don't agree on how to do this. There's that way. The the court really wants to make sure that they don't adjourn this trial uh, before a deal is done. And so the, the, there's some small things, but, you know, it's a lot of money, $44 billion. And so he's got to make sure he's got the commitments that he needs. Do we have a sense of how he would practically go about changing the company and moderating what it is now? I mean, does he get rid of the truth and safety teams? Does he just do a wholesale clearing of house? Is that what you would expect from him? No, I don't think that. I don't think he's going to do a wholesale anything. I do think he's letting on Donald Trump. He said it. He didn't suggest it. He said it. Uh, and, he, and he believes it. He said it to me before. Um, and so I think he would. He thought it was a mistake and he, he's going to bring him back on. And of course, he'll be un, under strictures. He has said that if he does more of the violent incitement, that'll that'll knock him off again. But um, But I think he's very intent on allowing as many people possible on that platform. Can I ask, though, what you just said, if he does the violent incitement, that'll knock him off again? What is the standard there? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's so much that Donald Trump tweets that mm-hmm. is violent. I mean, even tweets at mm-hmm. Mitch McConnell. Like, who's who's going to determine that threshold? Right. Do you have a sense of how high Elon Musk's tolerance is for something like that? Have you looked at his Twitter feed? Quite high. It's quite high. I, you know, he probably thinks those are jokes. Um, he it'll be up to him. He'll uh, he'll control the company. I think it's at 78 percent or some number. He's he's going to control the company. So whatever he thinks it is will be what it is, which is in, in a tendency to sort of uh, say whatever you feel like in the moment. What I guess I would ask you when, you know, he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, forecasted this a new kind of Twitter mm-hmm. that is going to be much friendlier to mm-hmm. right wing ideologues. What is the reaction oh, to that yeah. insight? Well, to some degree, yes, right. I mean, he's been unabashed mm-hmm. yeah. in his is I won't say praise, but his his belief that Donald Trump should have a voice and and should be on back on Twitter. Is there a yeah. sense within Silicon Valley that social media needs to be more friendly to right wing voices? Is, I mean, I guess I wonder if this is an ideology in search of a business mm-hmm. model or whether there is a, a thinking inside Silicon Valley that, that right wing voices mm-hmm. have become too marginalized and need to be more mainstreamed. You know, I don't think he thinks of it that way. Silicon Valley is different. There's more conservative people in Silicon Valley than you think. More libertarian light is what I like to call them. Almost no values whatsoever. They'll take whatever it takes to get to do what they want to do. That's pretty much their philosophy. Um, But I think in Elon's case, you never know what he's going to do. I can't imagine he'd think Marjorie Taylor Greene is fantastic. It's just not. He doesn't like to pin himself down. Now, he's been expressing more you know, I don't like the Democrats or he's talked about being a centrist where most of the country is. Um, he could go anywhere. You know, they, they I know they celebrate him, but he could turn on them at any point if he feels like it at, at any one moment. What about Twitter employees? I guess I wonder there's been mm-hmm. talk that some of them would resign en masse if Trump gets deplatformed, mm-hmm. depending on what Musk does mm-hmm. in his leadership I'm, capacity. Yeah. Is that a problem for him mm-hmm. or are there enough people in Silicon Valley that would be happy to work for a new revamped uh, Musk Twitter. Well, it's a, it's, it, 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 he, he'll find people. Don't worry. He's Elon Musk. You know, he definitely runs two other companies or three or uh, however many he has that are very, pop, very popular to work at, um, both Tesla and uh, SpaceX, uh, very important companies, actually. Uh, so I think he'll probably attract a lot of people. I, I think it's just, you just don't know what he's going to do. That's the problem with Elon. You never know what he's going to say. And actually, I'm always surprised by various and sundry things he says. Some of it's quite uh, conservative. Some of it's very liberal. Some of it's just crazy. Uh, 
Um, some of it's silly. And so you just don't know. And I think that a lot of people at Twitter will leave. Um, and that's the way it's going to be. If you don't like Elon Musk, you really shouldn't work at Twitter. Yeah. Uh, what about Facebook? Yeah. I mean, Facebook also took mm-hmm. Trump off its platform, but that was not a permanent ban. Yeah. And that sort no. of con- it is up for reconsideration, I believe, in January of mm-hmm. 2023, which means mm-hmm. Trump could be back on Twitter in time for a potential presidential bid. Do you, do you can you read the signs on that potential decision in any way at this? Uh, I don't. It, well, it's not going to be made by Mark Zuckerberg. Apparently, Nick Clegg, who is essentially his number two, it feels like that right now, is going to make that decision. He said that publicly in a recent interview. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I think they'll consider it. They'll probably bring him back. Would be my guess. Um, YouTube is also sort of put him in. I'm not really clear what it is. They put him just non-permanent banning. Um, and so we'll see what they do. I, I think if if Elon wasn't getting Twitter, the current management would not bring him back on because why bother? They've already taken the hit. Um, but if if Elon comes back, he doesn't mind taking a hit. And so uh, at Facebook's case, I'm not clear what they're going to do. They're going to watch him carefully for sure. Um, taking Putting him back on seems probably what's going to happen. That I mean, so Trump could be operating uh, full throttle on all of these social media platforms. Mm-hmm. What of Truth Social? Yeah. Does Truth Social, I mean, oh. does that hurt Trump's bottom line? I mean, where where does that, does that just sort of go softly into the night? Or what do you think the future holds for that? Well, that's that little violin of a social media site. I mean, it's not, it doesn't hurt his bottom line. It's not making any money. It's losing money. It's a disaster. It's a financial and operational disaster run by famous technologist Devin Nunes. Um, uh, you know, it's just, it's not, it's not going to matter at all uh, in any way. That thing's going away or in some fashion. Uh, the SPAC is in trouble. It's being investigated. Uh, there's vendors that are mad. It's, it's typical, you know, your typical Trump business. Um, and so, uh, so I think he'll be happy to be back on Twitter. He'll abandon it in a New York minute. Uh, and he'll be back on Twitter screaming away uh, as he likes to do. Uh, the thing is, let me just be clear. It might not work. People might be tired of this, right? Just like the, the Apprentice was very popular. I watched that every season and then it suddenly got tiresome. He may become very tiresome and more Trump is not necessarily good for the Republican Party. It, it, it's it sort of you get tired of him and weary. And I think a lot more people might that might happen if he gets more of a voice. I would dare say more Trump is not good for the Republican Party. But what do I know? <laughs> Kara Swisher, editor at large of yeah. New York Magazine, co-founder of Recode and host of the Pivot podcast. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks a lot. Up next, we have some breaking news. The Daily Beast reporter who broke the story about Herschel Walker allegedly paying for a woman to have an abortion is out with a new interview with that woman tonight. She says she is also one of the mother of Herschel Walker's children. We will have details from that breaking story coming up next. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news 
and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Just a few moments ago, we were talking about the bombshell story that rocked the Georgia Senate race, an allegation that the very anti-abortion Republican nominee, Herschel Walker, paid for an ex-girlfriend's abortion a dozen years ago. Well, there is now new reporting on that story just in the last few minutes from the same reporter who broke that original story, Roger Sollenberger at The Daily Beast. We should note that NBC News has not yet confirmed this reporting. Here is how the new reporting begins. Quote, after a woman revealed that Republican senatorial candidate Herschel Walker had urged her to have an abortion, Walker adamantly denied the story and claimed he had no idea who this woman could be. But there's a good reason the woman finds that defense highly doubtful. She's the mother of one of his children. The Daily Beast says when this woman first told the outlet her story, they agreed not to reveal details about her identity over her concerns for her safety and privacy. But after Walker denied the story, said he didn't know who was making it and essentially accused Democrats of making it up, the woman decided to reveal more. Quote, the woman told the Daily Beast that her chief concern with revealing her name was because she is the mother of one of Walker's own children and she wanted to protect her family's privacy as best she could while also coming forward with the truth. Walker has publicly acknowledged the child as his own and the woman proved she is the child's mother and provided credible evidence of a long-term relationship with Herschel Walker. She tells the Daily Beast that Walker, quote, didn't express any regret. He said, relax and recover, the woman recalled, alluding to the message on the get well card that Walker sent her along with the abortion payment. He seemed pretty pro-choice to me. He was pro-choice, obviously, she said. And she criticized Walker for appearing to believe that, quote, an abortion is an OK thing to do when it's not the right time for you, but a terrible thing for anyone else to do when you're running for Senate. The Daily Beast says the Walker campaign declined to comment for this story. I bet. But it does not seem like this story is going anywhere anytime soon. We'll be right back. It has been almost a week since the Justice Department asked the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals to speed up consideration of its request to end the special master's review of documents taken from his Mar-a-Lago Beach Club. Today, the appeals court agreed to expedite the DOJ's appeal, not as quickly as the Justice Department would have liked but on a faster track than Trump's team had proposed. Yet while this small part of the legal saga has been expedited, if you look at the bigger picture, you see that just about everything tied to the Mar-a-Lago investigation is operating on a delayed timeline, which is by design. As Politico points out, Trump's team has now managed to take the legal fight over the seized documents to four arenas, the New York courtroom of Special Master Judge Raymond Deary, who Trump's team asked to review material taken from Mar-a-Lago, the Florida courtroom of District Judge Eileen Cannon, who approved Trump's request for a special master, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in Atlanta, where Trump asked for a delay of the Justice Department's request to speed things along, and yesterday, the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C., where Trump is asking for an intervention to get classified documents back before the special master and potentially throw up roadblocks to, to the DOJ's criminal investigation. The multiple moving parts, Politico notes, has, quote, complicated the status of Trump's legal plight, which, of course, is the point here. Complicate a matter that at its core is not that complicated. Trump took thousands of White House documents, including hundreds of classified ones, to his Florida home. 
And for months, he refused to return them and even lied about their existence in response to a federal subpoena that triggered an FBI search of Mar-a-Lago. Joining us now is Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel and current professor at NYU Law. Andrew, thanks for being here. Nice to be here. Okay, I mean, four different courtrooms. Who has the stronger hand at this moment? It's really hard to tell because on its face, you'd think, oh, the DOJ, because Trump's fighting all these legal battles. But those battles have the effect of slowing down and complicating the DOJ's urgent work. Well, I think the first thing to remember is when you are a potential defendant, your job is to do what the Trump legal team is doing. Okay. That is what you do. That is, you know, you try everything you can, and the legal system is supposed to hear those claims, and, you know, if they're not merit, merit, if they don't have any merit, you rule against them. Mm. The root of the problem here is Judge Cannon. Yeah. Um, so, you know, yes, she appointed a special master. You know that um, at this point that Donald Trump is ruining the day for that because the special master is like, not it's, playing ball. It's his nightmare because he's actually a real judge. Um, and that's why you suddenly see Judge Cannon overruling the special master. That never happens, especially when the special master is another federal judge. But she is really the root of the problem because she's done things that are just so you know, just just really improper or, you know, just not following the facts or the law. So that's why you got the 11th Circuit involved. And you saw two Trump appointees, as we were discussing, um, who are on a panel of three yeah. ruling against Judge Cannon. And it's important to remember with respect to Clarence Thomas that people understand it, that was not really a selection by Donald Trump. He is the every circuit, every federal uh, appeals court has a justice in the Supreme Court who oversees any emergency relief. Um, and so he just happens to be the justice for this particular circuit. For the 11th Circuit. Exactly. And he has limited authority. He can't just do something unilaterally that couldn't be reviewed by the entire court. And it's also unlikely that he, if he wanted to, to grant something, that he wouldn't send it to the the whole court to decide. So you're optimistic because there's a lot of been there's a lot of speculation and concern that because Clarence Thomas is the justice that's overseeing this at the 11th Circuit uh, as he sits on the Supreme Court, that that could somehow factor into all this. You're optimistic that the entire court is going to review it. And then what? That they are not going to find in Trump's favor. Yeah, I would say what I'm optimistic is that either Clarence Thomas is going to deny it on its face because it's so laughable oh. um, and that he doesn't you just doesn't need to accept any of this. Or two, he could just sit on this. In other words, there's nothing that requires him to rule quickly. And in fact, there's nothing to suggest that he is expediting this review. And he could wait to see what the 11th Circuit does. Um, and then the whole thing could be sort of mooted. Um, would, you, would you really expect Clarence Thomas to actually just sit? I mean, given his previous positioning on uh, affairs, uh, Trump affairs, you think it's possible that he could be that unfriendly to this case as it concerns Trump's interests? I would say, first, I think that it's important that he would send something to the full court and not decide something unilaterally. And then if you are Chief Justice Roberts, there, is a, there are a lot of institutional reasons to not get involved in something like this. There, there, they have taken so many hits 
sort of publicly in terms of whether they are a political body. And this is a case where there's so such little merit mm -hmm. to what is being argued. That, and there's so many ways to not rule on this. And I mean, they just understand that the Supreme Court rarely takes anything. Right, it's true. Um, so this is not one where you read the brief and you said, oh my God, there's an injustice that's been done here. Well, yes. I mean, and I will say they're hearing cases right now <laughs> that I think a lot of people are concerned about that they wish they wouldn't take up. Yes. Uh, let me just in terms of Eileen Cannon, it, all roads keep going back to her. Right. I mean, if there are debates, if in a, if Judge Jerry somehow gets these classified documents back under his review, there could be a fight between Trump's team and the DOJ over what is actually privileged. Ultimately, Judge Cannon has to be the one to resolve that dispute. How much of an end run can the courts do around Judge Cannon, who thus far has proven to be an intractable supporter of Donald Trump to the degree that she's, I think, not exercising the best jurisprudence. Yeah. So just to understand it, if um, Donald Trump were to prevail in the Supreme Court, all it would mean is that Judge Deary gets gets to see the classified documents. And there's no way in God's green earth that he's going to say, oh, these documents that are classified, I now want to share them with the Trump team. He's not going to want to do that. And there will be this tension because Judge Cannon will be wanting to yes. give it to them. Here's where I think the, the off-ramp is, which is that the 11th Circuit Appeal, which is now expedited, and it's on a much faster track than, you know, than um, Donald Trump wanted, they could end all of this. Because one of the arguments that the government is making is that there actually was no jurisdiction for Eileen Cannon to sort of, you know, poke her nose into this. And Judge Deary actually has said the same thing, which is, can you please explain to me why this is not before the magistrate who Ooh. first heard this? Because he's his question, he understands sort of how yeah. normal processes work. Uh, one person does not in this picture. Name rhymes with Smanon. Andrew <laughs> Weissman, former FBI general counsel. Thank you as always for your wisdom, Andrew. You're Today, President Biden met face to face with one of his biggest Republican critics, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. The two came together to help relief efforts in Florida after Hurricane Ian. But if you think the Florida governor is putting politics aside, please think again. Here is something you do not see every day. Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis shaking hands with President Biden and thanking him for his response to Hurricane Ian in Florida. That moment today led to a flurry of breathless headlines about how Ron DeSantis is changing his tone and putting politics aside amid the natural disaster playing out in his state. But just take a second to remember who Ron DeSantis is and how he came to be the governor of Florida in the very first place. Ron DeSantis began his political career when he was elected to Congress in 2012, where one of his very first acts in office was to vote against hurricane relief funds for the victims of Hurricane Sandy. He was one of just two Florida representatives to vote no at the time, and he blasted Congress for what he called a put-it-on-the-credit-card mentality. Since becoming governor, DeSantis has gone out of his way to politicize every major crisis facing the U.S. while happily raking in whatever aid the federal government has sent his way. Remember that DeSantis was among the most ardent critics of President Biden's COVID relief policies, but that hasn't stopped him from taking nearly $10 billion from the Biden administration's federal coronavirus state and local fiscal recovery funds, money that he has used for plenty of unrelated issues, including shipping migrants across the country. And now, with federal relief money on the line and his own political fortunes at stake, Governor DeSantis is making nice with President Biden for the news cameras while simultaneously trying to politicize the hurricane elsewhere. 
Here was Governor DeSantis just yesterday giving an interview about the hurricane to one of the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th and criticizing the media for reporting that Hurricane Ian was originally heading for Tampa before actually striking further down Florida's coast. Well, look, I mean, I think I think part of it, quite frankly, you know, you have national regime media that they wanted to see Tampa because they thought that that'd be worse for Florida. That's yeah. how these people think. Yeah. I mean, they're, 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 they don't care about the people of this state. They don't care about the people of this community. They want to use storms and destruction from storms as a way to advance their agenda. The national regime media was hoping more people would die in the hurricane. Expect to see more of that Ron DeSantis as he continues to try and bolster his national image with Republican primary voters. That does it for us tonight. We will see you again tomorrow. 